It's the Brew Ha Ha Podcast with Steve Jackson and Mark Carpenter. It's the drive, Brew Ha Ha. We're doing an early edition brought to you by Russian River Brewing Company with her Linda. Our guest, our first guest today is food historian Mark Meltonville. He is live from the UK. And uh, Herlinda's with us. Herlinda, so Hello. what's the deal here? My friend Mark Meltonville, that is, uh, I judge with at the British Pie Awards in uh, Melton Mowbray, England. He, I have a little bit of an echo here, but um, he uh, is the consulting food and drink historian to the historic royal palaces for the Queen of England. And um, so he knows a lot about what people were brewing and drinking and eating in uh, Tudor times and uh, Victorian times, etc., and including during pandemic times of old. <laughs> Mark Meltonville, uh, thank you for being with us live from the UK. How are you? I'm good, yeah. Um, it's, it's getting pretty late here, but uh, we've had a beautiful day. <laughs> beautiful. That's a good thing. Uh, a consultant food historian. That sounds that sounds like a cool job. Uh, I don't think it's a real job, personally. Um, I, get to, <laughs> I get to look at the stories of food, drink, uh, and often manners that stretch back, well, it was supposed to be the last thousand years, but I got uh, involved in a bit of a project at Stonehenge, so now we've dropped back another 4,000. Um, I <laughs> So uh, I never know what's around the corner. I can be working on chocolate one week, beer or whiskey the next, and uh, um, people drop in like this and ask me all sorts of interesting questions. So how does one become a a, a historic food consultant? Uh, I'm sorry, consultant and food historian. Um, I would have said sheer bad luck, really. Um, I was working away in a little museum, minding my own business, and this really nice guy came up to me and said, uh, I'm a food historian, would you like to come and work with me? We're going to cook Tudor food and make Tudor drinks. And I wasn't bright enough to say no. (laughs) Wow. Now, Herlinda said something about the Spanish flu. I don't know if that's related. Uh-huh. What, what, are we talking about that at all, what they did back in the, those days? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, it was something Herlinda was interested in. She was saying that we, we last had a major pandemic, like the bad times we're going through at the moment, just over 100 years ago. It hit between 1918 and tw- 1919, and... Um, it was it was remarkably similar, apart from the fact that without global news and global information, people were left to deal with all this by themselves, not really knowing how bad it was in other countries. Right. And guys were asking, you know, what did, what did they do? Did they shut places? They shut some. They shut theatres. Did they wear masks? They tried that as an idea. But the big one, the big difference is we've shut our pubs. All our pubs are closed at the moment. Uh, there's beer everywhere. Some places it's free now in some of the breweries because they're trying to get rid of it without wasting it. Yeah. But 100 years ago, they thought shutting the pubs was a bad idea. The, the people just <laughs> wouldn't take that. Not after the First World War. Keep the pubs open. <laughs> wow. It was pretty much drink all the beer and wine and the spirits that you want back then, I suppose. That was the idea, but what people forget, of course, is uh, we're famous in Britain for our licensing laws. You know, the, you, you, the, you're in a pub and this bell rings and everyone says, time, gentlemen, please, you've got to stop drinking now, uh, closing time. And that is a product of that First World War. Wow. So prior to that, you could 
basically drink in a tavern or an inn, uh, whatever the landlord wanted. If he wants to stay open late while you all uh, sing and play cards, that's great. But during the First World War, they realised what they really needed men and women to do was go to work. So they started introducing these. Pub's got to shut at three, can't open again till six, got to shut at ten. So... The uh, licensing laws were a product of, of that war, and then the uh, government thought, you know what, if we shut the pubs as well as giving them licensing laws, we're really going to get into trouble. So a uh, bit of a 50-50 there. <laughs> so they created, um, I, I know a lot of our modern liqueurs and spirits mm -hmm. and the herbs that went into them throughout the world, a lot of them had to do with actually medicinal cures, oh, and yeah. we still have some around now that... I mean, you know, they even had one called Plague Water back during the plague. Oh, yeah, you're, you're jumping. Let's, let's jump back a couple of hundred years more. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a really difficult one, and I don't know how you guys uh, see it. There's a real leap between all distilling, so all those lovely drinks that we enjoy, were all considered medicine at first. They're in the physic books, not the cookery books. So you will find waters, as you said, plague water, water to cure you of dropsy, water to cure you of almost everything, including, I think I've got one somewhere, to cure you from a dog bite. But they saw all of that distillation as, as, a, as a tonic, something that was good. And how that crosses over into us saying, you know, hey... I'd quite like some of this tonic in a glass for myself for the evening. It's a good thing. The only the only little bit of evidence we've got, and it's, it's around the, the 17th century, so the early colonies in America, if you think of the French, when they finish a meal, you've been drinking your wine, and then you'll stop at the end for something called a digestive. So that's mm -hmm. your brandy. Right. And so they're still right. suggesting that that last drink isn't you drinking. That's you having something that's good for you, a digestive, a, a pick-me-up, a tonic. So that's probably where the start of those, those came in. But um, it, it's a really difficult one to track. So um, you go from, from plague waters into people going, you know what, brandy just tastes quite good. <laughs> I'll drink to that. Uh -huh. uh, it's, and gin and tonic as well. It says <laughs> that, on the uh, other one. It that, says, yeah, the gin and tonic is, um, I mean, the gin was a very popular drink in England from the um, end of the 17th century right the way through. That's the uh, the product of one of our kings, uh, William, came over from Holland. We'd run out of kings. We do that every now and then. We, we sort of just, they dry up a bit. And we have to bring another a foreign one in. And so we had to bring this guy in over from Holland. And he, he basically goes, where's all the gin? And uh, we, we don't make that stuff here. So he, he wants to encourage gin drinking because he wants gin for himself. So what he says is, how about this, guys? If you make gin, I'll make it tax-free. Uh, ah. <laughs> so lots and lots of gin works spring up everywhere. And that's when you've got the, the one that everyone's heard about, the gin lanes, the problems, because it becomes so cheap and so abundant that we've got people you know, virtually brushing their teeth with the stuff. <laughs> it's everywhere. The gin and tonic part comes from our exploration of uh, uh, India. Uh, tonic is quinine-based. Uh, that's right. in the news at the moment. Yeah. Uh, but quinine, we know, is a good anti-malarial. So you and I, we, we wander into India, and some guy says, this is a tonic. It's, it's bitter, but I think it's all right. So you sip it and go, ugh. I don't want that. So you put some gin in it to make it palatable. There you go. <laughs> it says here, after a number of years at, of looking at the usage of the historic kitchens of Hampton Court, through the reigns of Elizabeth I, James I, Charles I, and George II, that's pretty amazing stuff. And that reminds me to ask you, uh, does the current queen uh, pop a, a beer from time to time? Uh, 
well, we have a little bit of an arrangement, the Queen and I. I don't ask her what she does at the weekend, and she doesn't ask me. <laughs> uh, so the business of the royal household is never, never anything to do with those of us that work in the uh, in the historical palaces. Consultant, <laughs> consultant, food historian Mark Meltonville is with us live from the UK. Uh, Herlinda, I'll give it to you for a sec. Yeah, so actually Mark has given me tours of both Hampton Court, which was King Henry VIII's home, and then later his daughter, Queen Elizabeth I. And then also he's given me a tour of Kew Gardens Palace, which is where uh, King George, um, who was the king during our American Revolution, he, uh, and they, he actually, like, they found the kitchens, the old kitchens. They had just found them when I was there. And I've actually, you know, and at King uh, Henry VIII's, you know, Hampton Court Palace, I've gotten to see them roasting, a, you know, an ox on a gigantic <laughs> spit in the ovens. And he helped restore Queen Elizabeth's kitchen. But he does things to period. So he actually comes over to the United States as well, to like Williamsburg, and brews historic beers and distilling here in the United States. You were just here right before... You almost got stuck here. I nearly got stuck here. I, I, you know, I can think of worse places to get stuck. But, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I was um, just outside Philadelphia at a little um, mill museum, um, Newlyn Grist Mill, that's able to grind its own malt, which meant that uh, we were able to set up a little uh, brewery in what I think you guys call a summer kitchen. So a little temporary brewery for yeah. brewing up the beer every two or three months. And what we were trying to do there was using period equipment. So basically we're three guys with a stick in a bucket um, <laughs> with huge coppers full of water and, and uh, going through the process to see see what that those early colonial ales would be like. And uh, the same trip, I was lucky enough to have a quick go down at Williamsburg. And I've been really lucky over the years to uh, work in the wonderful distillery at Mount Vernon, where they produce George Washington whiskey. That's where I first learned to, learned to use a still. Uh, and that's a still with a fire on it, a bonfire underneath it. We have no thermometers, no gauges. That's using hand iron craft to make a spirit. I really enjoy doing that. Wow. Uh... Consultant food historian Mark Meltonville, live from the UK on Brews News with Erlinda, brought to you by Russian River Brewing Company. Mark, I appreciate you staying up late, man. That's okay. I'm good. Okay. Cool. <laughs> and All right. Let us know about your new experiment. We'll. Right. I'm well, sure we'd love well, to have you on again too. Yeah. Or, okay. or, I, I'm. I'm. I'm always keen to talk to people. Yeah. I'm. I'm. Um, well. What am I not doing at the moment? Because we're all staying in place. What I should be doing, and was doing up until mid-March, is a really uh, cool project that just sort of fell in my lap. Vinny and Natalie Chalurzo, co-owners of Russian River Brewing, are doing some cool stuff through these trying times. Their downtown Santa Rosa 4th Street brew pub is open for takeout. Beer and food, 11 a.m. to 8 p.m. every day. You can call ahead and place your order at 545-BEER. 545-BEER. I think we tried to get that number for this show, but uh, it was already taken. You can get great selections of bottles, cans, growlers, and uh, the Brew Pub's Tasty Beer Bites menu, chicken wings, and salads to go, and a lot more. You can go online at RussianRiverBrewing.com. It is Brews News with Herlinda. Food historian Mark Meltonville is joining us live from the U.K. Mark, this is fascinating stuff, uh, your gig and everything you've done. Uh, let me quote this. Working as a consultant food historian, I've been involved with many projects at numerous sites. 
It says here, I'm currently involved with two historic brewing projects that look at the recipes and techniques of beer making in the 18th century. Holy moly. Uh, during the summer of 2018, you worked with a team to bring the, uh, to life the food of 4,500 years ago. There was an event called Big Feast at Stonehenge. Holy crap. Talk about all that, Mark. <laughs> well, the, the, the bit you like from the uh, Big Feast at Stonehenge is an early brew. Uh, we got to have a go at a pre-beer beer. So we're, we're, before, we're before malting of barley, we're before all of that, we're before um, uh, any of the extraction of yeasts. And so these early drinks that appear in residue, so basically you've got an old pot, it's got some dust at the bottom. If you put that dust through um, various machinery like microscopes and uh, uh, various analyzers, you can find out what's left in the bottom of there, what the powder represents. Wow. And from that... Um, you, it's a, the biggest one is a mass spectrometer, but basically it gives you a backwards recipe. What 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 went on in there? And so a lot of these early drinks are grain, so we got barley in there, but because the barley is not malted, you need a sugar. So in goes some honey, and the best place to get yeast is from fruit skins, as you guys know with your grapes, and where we are, it's apples. So if you mix broken apples with honey, water, and barley, you get a drink, a, a beer-like, mead-like, drinky thing. Uh, and we put these into <laughs> ceramic vessels. Hey, and did hey the watch, watch the technical terms there, Mark. A drinky <laughs> thing. That's the one. Uh, what, was, what was interesting? Well, brewing in ceramic jars. What was disappointing was it tasted like hard cider. <laughs> it was really, It was really sort of, we all, we all sipped this stuff and went, oh, Oh, it tastes like hard cider, because it was going to, with some sugar. The yeast of eat, had eaten the honey. The barley gave it a bit of a background flavor, but mostly it just tasted of the apples. <laughs> oh, well. Wow, wow. Uh, Herlinda? Well, that almost sounds like an old um, uh, drink called braggot, which is yeah, like a beer. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, uh, we get lots of recipes for different braggots. They go through all the centuries. Um, in so, some cases, people are brewing braggots. They're spiced and, and fruited ales. Uh, in other cases, um, it's your little brewery, your little tiny town brewery, and you and I go and look in a barrel and go, yeah, not so, not so good this time. And then you, you um, spice it and fruit it up to try and get some sales out of it. Let, <laughs> let's talk about some historic food stuff, uh, uh, Mark, I mean, uh, I don't even know where to begin asking a question here, but uh, that's part of your gig, a, a consultant food historian, uh, looking at historic food and drink. Uh, what can you tell us about historic food? It gets, uh, that, that's the problem, is that the subject is so massive. People are always saying to me, so you worked in a palace, what did Henry VIII eat? We go, well, I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, the thing is, with, with, Food for the wealthy throughout history, and this will be the same for early Americas, it was more about giving people, if you had money, the things that others couldn't, a little bit of luxury. And one of those luxuries was always uh, choice. We go to a, uh, a restaurant, we look at the menu, we've got, that's why we go out there. It's not just the company, it's not just uh, the, uh, the experience, it's the choice. 
we, we're given a, a whole spread of things to, to choose from and we don't really know what we're going to choose till that moment. That's quite exciting for us as human beings. And that's what most of the big meals in the past were. They were all about having not a roast chicken, but roast lamb and roast beef as well. Mm-hmm. To have some of those wonderful British pies, not one, but two or three. Not one drink, not just beer, but maybe beer and ale and wine. And so all your guests, and this is true for 16th, 17th, 18th century, you sit people down and there's this grand buffet of all these different exotics and your host is saying, go on then, help yourself, have whatever you fancy. <laughs> that is so I'm, cool. Here, Linda, go ahead. Sorry. Um, I, I'm actually really interested also because it's we're at Memorial Day. You just had, mm. you just had VE Day, the Victory Day in the UK. And Mark and I actually met when I was, the, the, the year I judged the British Pie Awards with him, uh-huh. uh, the first time was for a pie for a hero to commemorate the um, start of World War One. Mm-hmm. And, yep, and it was a pie for a hero. So he was, he was actually, you know, he was like the one that was on, you know, UK Food Network and everything, of course. And, <laughs> and we became friends. But the pies are very interesting. But also... I'm interested in, like, we, we're almost seeing almost in a little bit of way, like, we're looking for flour right now. Everybody's baking. People are looking for yeast. World War II, VE Day, Memorial <laughs> Day. What was, what was that like back then in the U.K. also? And how do you, um, do you see similarities with now? Very, very much. Well, we, we, we have the same problem. Um, we, can't, we can't get any uh, flour at the moment. Um, when I've been speaking to the mills, apparently it's not the lack of flour, it's the lack of packaging facilities for the small bags we want in supermarkets. So there's flour if you want £25, but not if you want two. But we're having a lot of problems, lots of people are baking. And so last weekend was this V Day, Victory in Europe Day, 75 years. Uh, we were celebrating that us folks in Europe have not shot at each other, which is quite uh, a thing worth <laughs> celebrating. Uh, and I was asked to... Have a little look at some of the things that they, what would, you know, 75 years ago, the end of the war, what were they celebrating with? And they were really trying to make do uh, because, like our problems now, there was hardly any flour, there was hardly any fat they were having problems with. They were having to put margarine and all sorts of other, not such good things, uh, liquid paraffin in a cake. Um, I really, really don't recommend that personally. Um, and they had a lot of problems with not enough sugar. So I, I was asked to put together a little uh, afternoon tea to celebrate uh, 75 years ago. And we had some not very exciting spam sandwiches. <laughs> some sandwiches which came from a wartime newspaper recipe, which were mock crab. Now, a mock crab sandwich seems to rely on you having never eaten crab ever in your life. <laughs> Because it was basically vinegary egg. I don't think it was fooling anyone, especially not in California. You'll look at this and think, but this is egg and vinegar. We also had some, uh, they really didn't have enough to do any scotch eggs. So they suggested that you rolled up corned beef in a ball with onion and a little bit of curry powder and dip them in breadcrumbs. And again, it's not fooling anyone. (laughs) Thank you so much for staying up late and talking to us live from the UK. Mark Meltonville. It's Meltonville, V-I-L-L-E, Meltonville.uk. Check out this website. It's great. Again, thanks, Mark. Thanks. No problem. Really enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. Cheers.